375. 375, come every joyful heart that loves the Saviour's name. Your noblest powers exert to celebrate his faith. Tell all above and all below the debt of love to him you owe. Jesus, we ne'er can pay the debt of love we owe, yet grant us day by day our gratitude to show. Our life, our all, to thee we give, to thee, by whom alone we give. After the introduction, we'll rise and sing the whole of the hymn together, 375.
Now let us look to God for his blessing. Our blessed God, as we come into thy presence now at the beginning of a conference, conference in which we will be gathered around thy word, the living word, that lives and abides forever. We acknowledge the privilege that it is to be able to do so, to have the word of God in our own hands, to be able to read it, to be able to listen to ministry from it. And we ask our God that we might have just a real sense of the presence of the Lord among us as we study the word of God again this afternoon and later on in this evening. We thank you that we can sing of the love of the Lord Jesus. We think of thy word here in his love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And for everyone who can echo the words of the Apostle and say, The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, we bow to give to thee our thanks. We thank thee for fellowship with our two brethren, David and Douglas, and we just seek our God thy help for them as they open the scriptures of truth, as they take them, bring them before us, and teach us from them. We pray, our God, that they might know the help of thy, thy gracious Holy Spirit, and that we might know the blessing of the word being taught. Help us, our God, in our understanding of it. Help us, our God, to draw us closer to the person of the Lord Jesus, as we hear more of thy word. And we ask that as the word is opened and taught, that he is the one who will be glorified, and we will be those who will be blessed. And so we commit this gathering to thee, for all that is before us in the incoming hours, we just give to thee our thanks, and seek thy blessing in the precious, the worthy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our next hymn is number 119, after we sing the hymn, Brother David will, will speak to us. 190. O Christ, he is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love. The streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There to an ocean's fullness, his mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor well southern to his house of wine. I stand upon his merit, I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. Again, after introduction, we'll stand and sing the hymn together.
davvero difficile. Afternoon. Uh, we're going to turn uh, to read from the first chapter of our Bible uh, this afternoon in Genesis and uh, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 and uh, verse number 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and the evening and the morning were the first day. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters called he seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, and herb yielding seed after his kind, and the tree yielding fruit, whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it it was good, and the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said... Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness And God saw that it was good. And the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. And God created great whales and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let fowl multiply in the earth. And the evening and the morning were the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, cattle, and creeping thing, and beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so. And God made the beast of the earth after his kind, and cattle after their kind, and everything that creepeth upon the earth after his kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. 
and God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Now, I think that will maybe conclude our reading now. Uh, and we look to the Lord to bless his word. To us. Now, as has been mentioned, uh, my intention just for my part of the conference today is, is to consider the, the subject of the Word of God. Now, I know that every time we come to a conference like this, the intention is to look into the Word of God, but I want us to think about the Word of God itself from the, the different aspects that we have mentioned. I want to think uh, now about creation and the Word of God and then later on about Christ and the Word of God. And when we bring the two messages to, together in the will of God, what I'm hoping uh, happens is that we have some appreciation of the Word of God itself and as well as that we have some understanding of how we can use and uh, utilize the Word of God in our lives. Now, before we, we begin, um, I'll maybe just ask the question, uh, I don't want a show of hands or anything like that, but uh, how important is the Word of God to you? Now, it's worth just thinking about that for a moment in your own mind. You see, the, the Apostle Peter he said that we should be like newborn babes who desire the sincere milk of the word of God so that we may grow thereby. And anyone who has children will know something of the strength of the analogy that Peter is making here because a newborn has one thing that he craves above everything else. And that is milk. And says Peter, he said, uh, as newborn babes you desire the sincere milk of the word. The word of God is uh, of course the source of divine wisdom. And uh, Solomon in the book of Proverbs, he encourages his readers to, to seek after this wisdom as silver. And search for her as for hid treasures. Now um, you, you think of a, a, a treasure hunter. A, a prospector of, of some sort. And think of the great pains to which uh, such a person is willing to go. To obtain the treasure that he is seeking. It's going to involve work. It is going to involve sweat. It is going to involve Time. It is going to involve effort. 
And uh, Solomon is saying this should be the same attitude uh, that should mark us as we delve into the word of God to try and imbibe the treasure of God's wisdom. Now, having read from from Genesis chapter 1, I think it it helps just to to remind ourselves for a moment of of the context in which it would first have been read. You see, when, when Israel received this record from God, they had been brought out of the land of Egypt and uh, were likely in, uh, in the wilderness and uh, they had already received God's commands they're expected to walk in obedience to the word of God that they have received now they would be wondering what really is God like and how important is his word And uh, on some occasion Moses lifted up his pen to write, directed by the Spirit of God. He, He wrote this great record of creation and what he was doing was he was uh, revealing to the nation of Israel the kind of God whom they were in covenant relationship with. And he was revealing to them the importance of God's word. And and so as we read down Genesis chapter 1, we we can't help but see the the tremendous value of the word of God. He he shows us in Genesis chapter 1 just exactly what the word of God has accomplished in creation. The psalmist, you'll remember, he said... uh, that God spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And as they would continue to read through these first few chapters of Genesis, they would discover the disaster, the calamity that resulted from disobedience to the word of God. And as they thought about the instruction that they had received from God, they would recognize the authority with which it came and the importance that it should have in their lives. I think it's, it's beneficial for all of us just to remember these things, to, to appreciate what the Word of God has accomplished. And to look through Scripture and uh, understand for ourselves the, the disaster that results from disobedience. So we want to think then, focus in upon the word of God in Genesis chapter 1. Um, you'll have noticed just as we read down, I emphasized it a little, the repetition of the statement, and God said. It occurs ten times in Genesis chapter 1. Uh, verse number 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse number 6, and God said, let there be a firmament. Verse number 9, and God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered unto one place. And so we could continue right down the chapter, as well as that we read of occasions when God called something five times over. Uh, Verse number 5, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. 
And then later on in the chapter we read of the, the commands of God uh, in respect of the animal's creation and the human being. Now as the Israelite and us by extension at this present time, as we read these things, are there any truths that we can learn specifically about the word of God itself? And I think that there are. And uh, the first one I want us to consider this afternoon is just this, that the word of God has authority. The word of God has authority. Now, the fact that God has authority over creation, um, it shouldn't be difficult for us to understand. After all, he is the creator of everything, and that in itself marks him out as having authority. Someone has said that the very word authority has within it the word author. An author is someone who creates something and possesses it. Now, inasmuch as God is the foundation of all authority, he exercises that foundation because he is the author and the owner of creation. Now, so as creator and as sovereign, he has ultimate authority in respect of creation. Uh, but we might just ask ourselves the question, how does this creator communicate his authority? How does he express it? How does he make it known? And the answer, of course, is in his word. It's by his commands. And so we read in Genesis 1 verse 3, we've noticed already, it says, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So, so simply put, when God spoke, light shone. And time and again, just as we read through the verses, uh, God speaks, uh, and then there's uh, uh, an explanation of what it is that he says and then we read the, the expression and it was so verse 9 God said let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place let the dry land appear and it was so so, so God's word then is the expression of his authority it's the word of the creator and as such, creation should respond instantly and obediently to the word of God. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, on every occasion that God speaks, creation unquestioningly obeys. There's no dissent. There's no disobedience. There's no resistance. He spake, Psalmist said. And it was done. However, we come into chapter 2 and uh, there is a difference there. Because there we read about the Lord God commanding the man and saying in verse number 16, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now this commandment came with the same authority. And here we discover that the human being, the man, Adam, 
was different than the rest of creation. Being made in God's image, he had the freedom to make moral choices. He was able to refuse the commandment that God made. And of course we come into chapter 3 and the deceiver cast doubt on the word of God and God's authority is undermined in the, in the mind of men and God's special creature rebelled. And we've, we've just mentioned the catastrophic results that followed from that. But, but remember this, as the Israelite read these words, his minds, by the way, ten sayings and God said, in Genesis chapter 1. And as the Israelite read those words. His mind would undoubtedly go to the ten commandments. And he would know that they were not ten suggestions. They were ten commandments. They came with divine authority. They were not just good advice from God. They were commandments. They were laws. And they were completely authoritative as far as that nation was concerned. And rebellion against them would bring catastrophe for the nation. Now God's word, just in the same way, God's word is authoritative for us. We need to treat it as such. In fact, uh, when we got saved, that's what we did. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, he, he, he makes the point there in respect of the Thessalonians. He expresses his gratitude to God about them without ceasing. And this is what he says. He says, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Which effectually works also in you that believe. Now that attitude that marked us. That's what happened when we got saved. We bowed to the truth of the word of God. We accepted it as being from God. God's word. And we trusted the saviour that was presented in it. Now that same attitude to God's word. Should be the attitude that we maintain through life. James was uh, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ and he had much to say about the subject of the authority of scripture in uh, James chapter 1 and verse 18 he says this he says that God by his own will begat us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creature and the idea there is this that uh, we have been born of God and the means of our birth is the word of truth but this has been in order that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creature or creation and the idea is this God expects those that are begotten by him to be pattern creatures in the world as pattern creatures, then we will obey God's word. And so James goes on to the subject of submission to the word of God. And he says, be ye doers of the word. Not hearers only. Deceiving your own selves. Because it was here that Adam failed at the beginning. 
Adam should have been a pattern creature in the sense that he should have submitted to God's word and obeyed it. Now, sadly, at times the authority that marks God's word, uh, rather than us subjecting ourselves to it, we, we try to subject the word of God to us. And James takes that subject up as well, uh, by the way, in James chapter 4. And um, he, he talks about speaking evil one of another. And he says this. He says, the person who speaks evil of his brother and judges his brother. He says, that person speaks evil of the law and judges the law. He says, but if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then he says this, there's one lawgiver, that's God, who's able to save and to destroy, who art thou that judgest another. Now, the point that's being made here is this. James is obviously referring to the, the subject of critical and derogatory speech being made between, uh, uh, between believers, against believers, and he's saying, don't do it. In fact, he says, if you do it, he says, you're not only standing in judgment on your brother. He says, you're standing in judgment on the word of God. Now, why is that? Well, because God's word says plainly that you should love your brother. And so, uh, by disobeying God's word, what you are saying is this, that part of the Bible doesn't matter. That part of the Bible doesn't apply to me. So James says, uh, well, if you stand uh, as judge upon the word of God in that way, you're not a doer of the word. You're a judge. In other words, you think you have authority in respect of God's word rather than accepting that God's word has authority over you. And he concludes by pretty much asking the question, who do you think you are? He says there's only one who stands in relationship to, in a relationship of authority to God's word and it is God himself. You can't stand in authority. None of us can stand in authority over God's word. We need to stand in submission to God's word. So God's word is uh, authoritative. His authority is vested in his word. And the measure of our obedience to the Bible is the measure of our obedience to God. <coughs> That's the first point. God's word has authority. Another point that we learn in Genesis chapter 1 is that God's word gives light. On the first occasion that God speaks, uh, what we read there is, uh, he says, let there be light. And there was light. So on day one of creation, God's word brings illumination. Into the darkness there shines this light, the, uh, the result of God's word. Now just before that, in verse number two, we, we read of darkness upon the face of of the deep. And so there's this unformed and unfilled word world which is shrouded in darkness. 
And then the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters. And the Word of God comes dispelling the darkness. And there was light. Of course we know that Paul lifts this uh, by way of analogy in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And he says this, he says, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about ourselves, uh, there was darkness. I think we can all uh, agree about that. In fact, we sometimes sing the hymn that says, at least we do over in Northern Ireland, we sing the hymn, I wandered alone in the darkness. Not a ray of light could I see. And I wondered if Christ the Redeemer would save a poor sinner like me. But what changed it? What changed the darkness that marked us? The Word of God changed it. The Word of God shone in by the power of the Spirit of God and it illuminated the darkness of our souls and it enlightened us to the truth of God's Word. The truth about God. Now that was back at conversion, but uh, but while that was true then, it certainly was true then in a very special way. It's true along the pathway of life as a believer, isn't it? How often we have been in confusion, uh, facing difficulties in life, and uh, the danger is that the last place to which we turn for enlightenment is the word of God. And yet the, the, the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. And it is a light unto my path. It shows me where I am. It shows me where I should be. <coughs> and that word. That when creation was shrouded in night. Drove back the dark curtains. And lo there was light. We have found that it has dispelled the darkness. Not only in respect of our conversion. But very often. In respect of our confusion. In life. <coughs> You know, I was thinking, just keeping in mind, trying to keep in mind the, the fact that it would have been the nation of Israel reading this at the beginning. And uh, I, I was just thinking there, you'll remember the, the, the plagues that there was, that there were, on the land of Egypt. And uh, God brought the plague of darkness. That was plague number nine. And what we read is that there was a, a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They, they couldn't see one another. They couldn't rise from their place for three days. But, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now it, it seems to me that there's a little parable in that. For those of us, especially I suppose with young families, is there light in our dwellings? The world around is a dark place and the word of God has little place in the world. And people would push it to the very periphery of society and shut it out altogether if they could. 
But here is the distinction between Israel and Egypt. Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, we need to ask ourselves, is the word of God read? And is the word of God valued in our homes? And I'm not for one minute speaking as an expert in respect of bringing up children. I think all of us who do it, we just muddle through as best as we can. But there is no doubt that a Christian home should prioritise the word of God. You see, uh, Paul says to Timothy, from a child, thou hast known the Holy Scripture." Which are able to make me wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And here we have the illuminating power of the word of God even in the mind of a child. Able to make them wise unto salvation. And this is, this is just the peculiar privilege if you like of mothers and fathers and grandmothers and grandfathers. And uncles and aunties and uh, any person who's in contact with children. Just to shine the light of the word of God into their minds. So, uh, the word of God has authority. The word of God gives light. Another thing that the word of God does is this. It, it creates an atmosphere. <coughs> now you might think that's pushed a little, but I don't think it is. See, look at day number two. Verse number six, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. And let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, the expanse. And he divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. It was on to say he called the firmament heaven. Now, I, I am purposefully, for a number of reasons, avoiding the whole uh, scientific thing. Okay, there are men who are uh, better able for that than I am. What we're just doing at this moment is drawing from the word of God some principles that are beneficial for us. But it seems that there was water that covered the earth and this water was divided into two parts and some left on the earth and in some way there was water that formed a, a canopy or clouds or whatever uh, above the earth and there was this space between the two and God called the firmament heaven. Now that word heaven it's worth just reminding ourselves that it doesn't always refer to the place where God is. That is where God dwells. Sometimes it refers to the place where the stars are. And sometimes it refers to the place where the birds fly. And that's the place evidently in view here. So the, the heaven review, referred to here, I take it, is what we, we sometimes call the atmospheric heaven. And uh, so God separated the waters, created the sky as we know it, the place where the birds were going to fly. Now, we would see as we, we, we progress through uh, the, the chapter and lift some more principles out of it, what we'll see is this, that uh, the waters are going to bring forth abundantly the moving creature that has life. And, and, and foul. Birds that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. But before life was produced, the conditions were provided so that life would flourish. And those conditions were provided by the word of God. Now, 
I just want to suggest that the teaching the word of God and following the word of God will provide an atmosphere for spiritual life to progress. That, that's what the assembly, after all, is all about. Uh, and yet we need to be honest at times with ourselves and just ask the question, if someone was to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour in our gospel meeting, is there an atmosphere in the assembly to encourage the growth of the soul? Growth requires a number of things. It requires nourishment and it requires uh, a certain amount of liberty but within boundaries as we'll look at in a moment or two. And we need to ask, are we, we giving the spiritual nourishment that people need? And are we giving sufficient liberty for people to grow? You see, the Pharisees... Um, of the Lord's day they, they, they profess to hold the Old Testament scripture in very very high esteem and uh, so just in order that the scripture wouldn't be broken what they did was this they added to it a whole range of additional rules and additional regulations and their motive was ostensibly good but the results weren't the Lord said that they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, <coughs> lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Now that is hardly a commendation for Adam to the Word of God. So how should young believers be treated? How should they be instructed? Um, I, I love the passage in Acts chapter 11 where, where Barnabas is sent to see the grace of God at work at Antioch. And when he arrives, this is what it says, he, he saw the grace of God and he was glad and he exhorted them all that with purpose of heart they would cleave unto the Lord. Now, this was the proper response at the beginning to encourage growth. And then he sent Paul, sent for Paul. And Paul came and for a whole year he assembled with the church and he taught much people. And so what we're learning is this. For those that are just saved, what they need to learn is this. Their personal relationship with the Lord is paramount. And following on from that, that needs to be encouraged and built up by the consistent teaching of the word of God. Now, I, I'm saying this, I, I don't know hardly anybody here. And uh, anybody that I, I do know, I'm not aiming at you, so don't, don't think that for a moment. I say this carefully, I don't say it harshly, but, but remember this adding to the Word of God simply produces, or it can simply produce, a restrictive, inhibiting, harsh, critical atmosphere among the Lord's people and it stifles progress and it stunts spiritual growth. Space is needed. There is an atmosphere that is conducive to growth. In fact, James talks about that atmosphere at the end of chapter 3. And he, he talks about people 
who, who possess the, the wisdom that is from above. And then he says this of them, he says, The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. And the point is, is this, he seems to be saying that these people uh, possessing spiritual wisdom, morally pure, peace-loving people, gentle and reasonable in their character and so on, they, these people, they produce an atmosphere of peace. And in that atmosphere, spiritual life can flourish. And the fruit, which is righteous living, can be produced. So God's word creates an atmosphere. So it has authority. It gives light. It creates an atmosphere. Another thing about God's word is this. It sets boundaries. See in day number three it says this. Verse number nine. And God said. Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together unto one place. And let the dry land appear. And it was so. So here the waters are controlled by the word of God and the boundary is set so that the dry land will remain uncovered. Now, it's important just to see there, by the way, that the boundary set by the word of God was for the good of man. You know, sometimes we we can't see the reason why God gives uh, a command that he gives in Scripture. Now, I believe we should try our best To find out the reason why. Because if God has commanded anything. It's revealing something about his own character. And this enables us to to get a greater understanding of his character. If we can understand why. But what we need to remember is this. Whether or not we understand the specific reason. For a boundary that God has set. We can be assured of this. It's for our good. You know, in the, in the next chapter, we know a boundary was set. We've referred to it already. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat it. There's no ambiguity to that boundary. The duty of man as God's creature was to stay on the right side of it. Of course, we know the result. The nation of Israel were given their boundaries. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt Not one of those commands was arbitrary. Not one. They came from the character of God himself. And every one of them was for the good of man. To cross the boundaries was to commit transgression. uh, But but not only so, it was just self-destructive. And that's the sad thing about sin. Man in general... In the world, they either refuse to recognize the the boundaries that God has set or they purposely cross them. You know, we think of the boundaries in this chapter, and I'm not going to take time to go into them in too much detail, but but think of a boundary that God has set in respect of of reproduction. Uh, Verse number 11, we read of the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind. Verse 21, God created great wheels and every living creature that moveth, which the waters brought forth abundantly after their kind. And every winged fowl after his kind. So we could go on. Of course men try to deny that such a boundary exists. Even though all the evidence supports it. So God's word is clear. Creatures can only reproduce after their kind. Now, as believers that really should put 
the final nail in the coffin, if you like, of macro evolution. There's a boundary that God has set that can't be crossed. Then there's the boundary of gender. It says male and female. Created he then. Now, uh, this is a boundary which evidently is being deliberately confused in our day. And God has set the boundary. And man is challenging the boundary. But listen, the, the distinction between the sexes is important. For a whole number of reasons. But the different rules should be embraced. This is God's design. He's the designer. He knows what is best for his people. Females and males shouldn't be competing. They should be complementing each other. Just to kind of bring it down to, 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 to bottom line. Men should be men. And women should be women. There's the boundary of marriage. We go into the next chapter. And that is taken up as well. One man. One, one man. One woman. One flesh. And all of these boundaries. Man is seeking to cross. Or seeking to break. I've said. The big thing to remember. Just at a very practical level. When it comes to the recognition that the word of God sets boundaries is to remember this that God's boundaries are for our good another thing that God's word does is it produces life from day three right through to day number six we have that uh, emphasized in different ways we read in verse uh, 11 and God said let the earth bring forth grass verse 20 and God said let the waters bring forth the moving creature. Verse 24. Let the earth bring forth the living creature. So God's word is life given. You know where, where did life come from? It's a big question. Um, and the answer that the Bible gives. Is that God's word produced it. In fact when we come to John's gospel chapter 1. We read of the Lord. The word in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And I take it what it's saying is this. That, that life finds its origin in him. The word of God. And life is a witness to man that God exists. We live in an animated creation. There are all different kinds of life. Uh, plant life, bird life, animal life, fish life. Human life. Physical life, spiritual life. All of it produced by the word of God. We've already mentioned James chapter 1. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. Now, if God's word produces life, and it does. When a person obtains that life, it's going to make a change. I don't, I don't mean it's going to make them perfect. I don't even mean that the change will be instantly radical. But remember this. The writer of the Hebrews spoke of things that accompany salvation. And in the heart of a person uh, who has received divine life. There is a love that, that responds to God. 
And John, you remember uh, in his first epistle and uh, in all of his, his epistles, certainly the first and second one, he, he expands on this. Spiritual life results in people who, who keep God's commands. Characteristically. Who love their fellow believers. Who do righteous things. Who don't live a life of habitual, continual sin. Who abide in the doctrine of Christ. I want to say a final thing, and with this I'm going to finish. Because uh, I don't want to eat into my brother's time. The final thing about the word of God, which I found really encouraging. And uh, I think it's very, very important for us to get a grasp of. And it's this. The word of God is sufficient. Now, um, in Genesis chapter 1, everything God wanted to accomplish was accomplished by his word. You know, from the commencement, God said, let there be light. Right through the the various stages in the chapter to the conclusion, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Everything that was accomplished was accomplished by the word of God. Now, this this is really important for us to grasp, because the word of God is not only essential, it is sufficient to accomplish God's purpose in the believer's life. You remember 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3 and Paul, he encourages Timothy. He's going to, to leave. He wants to leave an encouragement for Timothy. He says, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. He goes on to say, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect. Truly furnished. Unto all good works. At the commencement. The scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. What about all the things that happen through the course of life? Well says Paul. Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And what about the conclusion for the believer? It says that the man of God may be perfect. That word means to be complete. To be really what God intends them to be. To be thoroughly equipped to do the will of God. Now, what this means, just just very simply, is this. If there is a believer in this meeting, and you want to fulfill the will of God in your life, and live for the glory of God in your life, the, the, the number one responsibility that you have is to get into the Word of God. When the Word of God is acknowledged as authoritative, and when it's allowed to shine its light upon our pathway, When it creates the very atmosphere that we breathe. When when, when setting the boundaries of our life. Those boundaries they equate with. They are are guided by the boundaries of the word of God. 
And when we use this as a means for our spiritual growth, the word of God is sufficient. Nothing more is required. I'm going to finish just with a poem. Uh, it's a Scottish hymn writer, actually, who, who wrote these words. A man by the name of James Montgomery. And this is what he said. He said, the word of God, the word of truth, instruct our childhood, guide our youth, uphold us through life's middle stage, and be our comfort in old age. It was by the word the heavens were made. By it the earth's foundation was laid. All things that are on it depend. Their source, their stay, their rule, their end. Is it any wonder Peter said, he said, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. We do appreciate the ministry that we have received from the Word of God. For Douglas speaks to us, could we sing number 393, please? 393. <clears throat> How I praise thee, precious Saviour, that thy love was over me. Thou was saved and cleansed and filled me, that I might thy channel be. Empty that thou shouldest fill me, a clean vessel in thy hand, with no power but as thou givest, graciously, with each command. Again, after an introduction, we'll stand and sing the hymn together. 393.
joy to be here today with you and to share with our dear brother uh, David in the ministry of God's Word. I'd like to turn please to uh, the Gospel by Luke, uh, Luke's Gospel and reading in chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Uh, my subject today is, or this afternoon, is opening the book of grace on earth. And Lord willing, tonight we're going to think about opening the book of government in heaven. Well-known passages, uh, Luke 4 uh, this afternoon, and God willing, Revelation 5 uh, in the evening. So let's turn to Luke chapter 4, please, and we'll read from verse 14. Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee... And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in the synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And he gave it again to the minister or the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, Ye will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land, but unto none of them, was Elijah sent, save unto Sarepta, a city of Zidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Amen. Just before we look at the detail of this passage, uh, we might ask a couple of questions. First of all, why does Luke give such prominence to this incident? Um, I remember preaching the gospel some time ago and saying this was the first sermon the Lord preached. Well, of course, I was wrong. Because it's not his first sermon. It's his first recorded sermon. 
first sermon in Nazareth. But um, if you read, um, or if you look at Newbury's margin, he suggests that maybe one year had passed since the baptism of the Lord to this point. And it wasn't his first sermon, and it wasn't, we would say, it wasn't a very successful sermon. So why is it that, uh, that Luke gives this such prominence and records it in such detail? Well, if you read uh, David Gooding's commentary on Luke, he says the sermon at Nazareth was programmatic. And uh, what he means by that is that the Lord in this sermon is setting out his program for his gracious ministry. I think we can all see that quite clearly. That uh, during the Lord's uh, public ministry, he is fulfilling the very things that he lays out in this sermon. It's the, the unfolding program of grace during the life of the Lord Jesus. But I want to suggest something else, brethren and sisters, today, and that is this. That not only do we have here the program for the personal ministry of the Lord, but we have the program for the dispensational ministry of the Lord. In other words, this is not just setting out the program for the next three years or the next two years. It is setting out the program for the next 2,000 plus years. And I want to look at it like that today. That that what we have here laid out before us, opening what I've called the book of grace, is the program for the age in which we live. And so it's important for us today. We might also ask a second question. Why does Luke, out of all the writers of the Gospels, only Luke records this? Matthew doesn't, Mark doesn't, John doesn't. But Luke records this in some detail. Why does only Luke record it? Well, I think perhaps the answer is in this, in part at least, that you will know that uh, there is only one man who wrote uh, books in the Bible who was not a Jew, and that man was Luke. He is the only Gentile author in the Bible. And what we have in this incident is we have the book of grace opened uh, to the Jew, and we have the rejection of the Jewish people, and we have the Lord Jesus reminding them that in Old Testament times, when the nation of Israel rejected the word of God, the blessing went out to the Gentiles. He talks about the, the widow and Sarepta, and he talks about Naaman the Syrian. That's the whole point of that. If you won't have it, then they will have it. And uh, Luke as a Gentile, he wants to record that. Because he has experienced grace that the people of Israel rejected. And brothers and sisters, I don't know if there are any Jews in the audience here today, but we're all in that category. We've all experienced grace that has been rejected by the nation of Israel. And so Luke records that because he's a Gentile. But more than that, Luke records this because he's also going to write the the book of the Acts. And... uh, What is the story of the book of the Acts? The story of the book of the Acts is this, that God begins in Jerusalem and it ends up with Paul in prison in Rome. That uh, gradually through the book of the Acts, the glory is departing from the temple, as it were. The glory is departing from Israel. The gospel is going out further and further until the book closes 
It's a very unsatisfactory ending if this was just a missionary story. It closes with Paul in his house arrest saying, well, if you won't have the gospel, we'll turn to the Gentiles. That's the whole point. And Luke's gospel flows into the Acts and he says, I want to tell you that right at the beginning, the Lord Jesus opened the book of grace and he had in mind the blessing of the Gentiles. And I'm going to record it in the book of the Acts. And then there's something else, and we'll get onto the passage in a minute. Uh, there's something else. Who was the faithful, lifelong companion of the Apostle Paul? It was Luke. You remember writing his last letter, quite poignant, isn't it? Paul says to Timothy, only Luke is with me. And uh, I believe this, brothers and sisters, that Luke records in his gospel the saviour opening the book of grace and I think he records in the book of the Acts the apostle Paul opening the book of grace and there are parallels we're not going to, we're not going to push it in too far uh, I hope you don't think I'm being uh, um, imaginative here but there is a parallel with what the Lord is doing and what Paul is doing and Paul says I was the, sorry Luke says I was the companion of the apostle to the Gentiles, the apostle who defined his apostleship as testifying to the gospel of the grace of God. And so I think that's why it's given such prominence here. It's not just the personal ministry of the Lord, it's his dispensational ministry. And Luke, as a Gentile, wants to assure us that the book of grace has been opened to the Gentiles. Now, brothers and sisters, we're going to think today of the Lord Jesus opening the book of grace. But I want to say this, that that is our role as well. You see, there are new neighbours move into your street. And uh, you go along with uh, some flowers or some uh, uh, chocolates or some cake, because that's what Christians do. And uh, you knock on the door, and when they come to the door, you discover it's a man living with a man. Or it's a woman living with a woman. We've just heard about this. So what's your reaction to that? Well, I believe that our reaction should be that we open the book of grace. It is not our job, brothers and sisters, to regulate the unconverted lives of unconverted people. Now, we condemn any lifestyle like that. We are horrified with such behaviour. But brethren and sisters, let me challenge each one of us and challenge myself that in situations like that, our job is not to regulate how ungodly people live their lives. It is in this dispensation to open the book of grace. And we're going to see how the Lord did it. And I want to just focus on five very simple and short points and that your pie is coming so just hold that out before you uh, but I want to look at five very simple short points as to the ministry of our blessed Lord and to see that these things can be worked out in our lives too as the book of grace is opened on earth I'll tell you what the five points are just in case we don't get to them all I'm sure we will but the first one is that this was a local ministry it was in Nazareth. Secondly, and I'm 
I'm encroaching on some of my brother's uh, material here. It was a biblical ministry. It was based on the word of God. And thirdly, we're going to see that this was a spiritual ministry. It was carried out in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find out, fourthly, that this was a dispensational ministry. In other words, it was a ministry that was right for this particular age. And then finally, we're going to think about a topical ministry. Uh, I get a bit worried when I hear people talk about topical ministry. It's not that we take our teaching from the newspaper headlines or what's happening around us. But what I want to focus on, in fact, I thought of doing the whole message on this, but uh, I ran out of steam, I must say. But uh, I was thinking of this expression, this day and this scripture. And we're going to see, brothers and sisters, we've got to match the right day to the right scripture. And the Lord Jesus did that. It was very topical ministry. So let's just think briefly and simply about these points. First of all, it was a very local ministry. The scripture says in verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. Let's just think about that for a moment. Where he had been brought up. Of course, Luke is the only writer, the only gospel writer who gives us a glimpse of the growth and development of the Lord Jesus. We know this. And uh, you remember as a boy of 12, Luke gives us different dates, doesn't he, in the progress of the Lord. When he was 8 days old, when he was 40 days old, when they came up to the temple to present him and so on, when Mary came up with her offering, and then when he was 12 years old, and then Luke says, uh, 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 when, when the Lord comes to be baptized, he began to be about 30 years old. And so Luke is giving us the progress, but we have only tantalizing glimpses of what we call the hidden years in Nazareth. There are three expressions in the Bible, I think, that give us some indication about Nazareth, about these hidden years. Isaiah speaks of him growing up. Paul speaks of him in Acts chapter 13 being raised up. And here we have in Luke chapter 4, uh, the, the scripture speaks of Nazareth where he had been brought up. It's lovely, brethren and sisters, to think of him growing up in Nazareth, isn't it? Uh, but he didn't grow up just simply before the people of Nazareth. Isaiah says that he will grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. You couldn't get drier ground than Nazareth. It was a very unpromising field. But in the Arab desert that was Nazareth, he grew up before the Lord as a tender plant. Paul speaks about him being raised up. And in Acts 13, he's not talking about the resurrection. He's talking about him being raised up as a deliverer. Raised up as the Savior. And so in Nazareth, we can picture the Lord growing up before the eye of God. We can picture the Lord being prepared as he is raised up for that moment when he will step out into the the public limelight. But Luke, he focuses on this uh, very human side and he says it was where he had been brought up. That word brought up, or these words brought up, it's just a word for being nourished. And uh, I don't have children. And so I never give advice to parents. 
Um, but I would just say this for the encouragement of every parent. It's not a nice world to bring up children. It's a very difficult world, I imagine. I can only imagine what it must be like for parents when they see what's around. And uh, you're trying to protect your children. You're trying to bring them up. Uh, let me just encourage you by saying this. That the man on the throne of the universe was brought up in filthy, disreputable, despised Nazareth. And he heard it all, and he saw it all, and he understands exactly what is going on. And so Luke says that was where he was brought up. I want to just focus on this for a moment and say that for 30 years the Lord Jesus lived among them. He ate the same food that they ate. He, uh, he uh, listened, to their, listened to their stories. He listened to their talk. He listened to their conversation. Uh, he, he lived among them. He labored among them. He worked with them. And then when he was 30 years old, he began to speak to them. And uh, although the initial reaction was anything but favorable, somebody said that, for 30 years he sat where they sat and he listened to them and he lived among them and he ate their food and, and then he began to speak and the world has been listening ever since. I just want to make this point. I feel, brothers and sisters, and uh, don't uh, think I'm being harsh here, but I think that we may have confused isolation and separation. There was no one more separate than the Lord Jesus Christ. But there was no one less isolated than him. And I just want to bring a very practical word here. That before the Lord ever opens the book of grace. Before he teaches them. Before he preaches to them. He has lived among them and rubbed shoulders with them. And Luke tells us about the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. And someone has said, he did it all in Nazareth before he opened his mouth. He did it all in Nazareth before he opened his mouth. And the people knew him. And he knew them. And I suggest to you, that when he talks about these different classes, the poor, the broken hearted, the blind, the, those that were captives, he is speaking from the experience of someone who's lived among these people. And I, I fear that we can become a select group of Christians that are doing our own thing in our own little corner and we're not mingling in the best sense of the word with people in need. I remember Ian Robertson saying that uh, it was quite humorous really but it wasn't humorous in one sense. He said there are some Christians and the only unconverted person who's in their house is the gas man who comes to read the meter every year. Let me just challenge everyone here today. When is the last time you had unconverted people in your home? Is it that we're becoming so isolated that uh, we mourn the fact that people are not coming into gospel meetings? Uh, and perhaps we've got the emphasis all around the wrong way. And we need to be close to the people. The Lord Jesus was close to the people. It was a very local ministry. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. 
And so let me just encourage you. Let me just, we want to be very practical. We're not at all judgmental here. But let us see to it, brothers and sisters. What about that person down the road? What about that old lady along the road? When is the last time you go in for a cup of coffee or something like that? Can we not open our homes? We can't get them into the hall, but we don't need to get them into the hall. But we need to get close to people. To be able to bring them the word of life. And the Lord Jesus never once did he compromise his holiness and his sinlessness. But he was, if I can say this, he was a man of the people. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. It was a local ministry. But then, <clears throat> moving on, it was, of course, a biblical ministry. And I'm, I'm now transgressing on a brother's ministry, but I hope you'll forgive me. And I want to just uh, add my amen to what he said about the Word of God. Very important principles from Genesis chapter 1. But the Lord Jesus comes into Nazareth, into the synagogue, and we're going to see that all he does here is based on the Word of God. Think for a moment about his attention to the word of God. It says it came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue. I don't think it's saying that his custom was to stand up to read. I think this was the first time he'd done this. But I think his custom was to attend to the reading and the exposition of God's word. Have you attended some really dreadful meetings? I'll tell you this. You've never experienced the synagogue at Nazareth for 30 years. Um, have you been at some meetings and you've just been so looking forward to the end? Maybe you think this is one. <laughs> um, you imagine the Lord Jesus, the author of scripture, and yet he is attending regularly. This was a custom. This was a regular feature of his life at Nazareth. Every Sabbath day he attended the synagogue to hear the word of God. Let me just encourage the young people. Don't give up on attending Bible teaching. Sometimes the standards are quite low. Without <laughs> pointing fingers at myself. But remember this. That our blessed Lord. His attention to the word of God. Meant that regularly. He was sitting under the sound of the scriptures. As his custom was. Think for a moment, not only his, his attention to the word, but his attitude to the word. Um, if Her Majesty the Queen were to come into the hall, I don't suppose it's going to happen, but if it were, and somebody shouted at the back, Her Majesty the Queen, what would happen, well I hope what would happen is this, that everyone would stand up. Uh, it used to be the case uh, for the gentleman here, that if the gentleman were in a room and a lady came in, uh, that... Uh, when a lady walked in the door, the gentleman would stand up. That's what we used to do in Cullen, anyway. And uh, when we discover here that the Lord Jesus stood up. Now, it was customary, I understand that. It was customary to stand up to read the Word of God. But I take it that the Lord is showing a respect and a reverence for the scriptures. He stands up to read the word of God. Now I'm not suggesting that if you're reading the scriptures in your home you have to stand up. But what I'm saying is that this attitude is an attitude of respect 
and reverence. We've been hearing about that already today, about letting the Word of God judge us instead of standing in judgment on the Word of God. And so the Lord Jesus, the author of Scripture, he he is attentive to the Word of God, he attends the synagogue, his attitude is that he displays a respect and a reverence for the Word of God, that he stands up to read it, and then of course he not only stands up, but he sits down, and this denotes the attitude of the teacher, and he is unfolding, as we've just been hearing, the authority of the Word of God. And then we're going to see in a moment that when he approaches the Word of God, he uses another A, accuracy, in his interpretation and application of the Word of God. Now I just want to reinforce what our dear brother has said. If the Lord Jesus, in his ministry, would give such a place to the Word of God, then surely it becomes us to do the same. To be attentive to it. To have an attitude of reverence toward it. To bow to the authority of Scripture. To approach it and seek to understand it with accuracy and carefulness. The Lord Jesus embarks on this ministry of grace. And it's a local ministry. And it is a biblical ministry. Not only that. It is a spiritual ministry. We're going to come back to this in a moment, his finding the place and, and, and so on. But let's just think of this for a moment, that the place uh, it was written, this is the reading of the Lord Jesus, and the first thing that he says is this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. That's wonderful. By selecting this passage... And saying it was fulfilled, the Lord is making a direct claim to be the Christ, the anointed. We maybe don't catch that, but they caught it. That's why they said, but this is Joseph's son. They they understood that by reading this passage and stating it had been fulfilled, the Lord was doing nothing less than claiming to be the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah. And they couldn't get their heads round it because they said, we remember him growing up here. This is Joseph's son. But the Lord opens with this passage from Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Two things about this. First of all, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. If we read in the Old Testament, we'll find that there were times when the Holy Spirit came upon people. And the Holy Spirit came upon people to empower them and to control them. And then the Lord Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me. And so there's another thought here. The anointing is not so much uh, empowering or controlling, but the anointing is authorizing and equipping. And what the Lord is referring to here is his baptism at Jordan. And you will remember, I'm sure, the offerings in the Old Testament. You get the meal offering. And you remember that the meal offering, you had to take the fine flour. And it speaks about bringing that meal in two ways. It could be fine flour mingled with oil. And our brethren, our older brethren, love to teach us about this. And it's quite true that the fine flour mingled with oil is the 
incarnation. It's the it's the the the, the Holy Spirit coming upon Mary that uh, which is conceived in her is of the Spirit of God. And brethren and sisters, when the Lord Jesus was here, it was fine flour of humanity mingled with the oil of the Holy Spirit. But then you could have fine flour mingled with oil, or you could have fine flour anointed with oil. And so uh, the teaching is this, that the Lord Jesus was that meal offering, perfect and pure, mingled with oil. There never was a moment when he was apart from the Holy Spirit, but there came that very public moment when he was anointed with oil. I think every reference in the New Testament to the Lord Jesus being anointed, apart from the woman who anointed him, every reference refers to his baptism. And so we see the Lord Jesus coming up um, uh, out of Nazareth, being baptized by John. You remember the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove, and it abides on him. And Luke says, here is a man who is saturated, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. And everything he does is going to be in the power and under the control and under the direction of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful ministry of grace this is. That the Lord Jesus, as a man, he moved in the complete power and control of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke says, I recorded that in my gospel but I also recorded it in the book of the Acts. Because what I saw there was this. That the same Holy Spirit came down. Not now as a dove resting. But there were these uh, tongues like flames of fire resting on the disciples in the, in the upper room. And, and this inaugurated a ministry, a dispensation, an age saturated by the power and energy of the Holy Spirit of God. Brethren and sisters, that's where we are. And we experience the Holy Spirit in our lives at the moment of conversion. Young believer, you already are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. You have a responsibility to cooperate with the Holy Spirit of God. Not to grieve the Spirit of God. You have been sealed. You have been anointed. And just in the same way, in a sense... The ministry of this age, the opening of the book of grace, it must be carried out in the energy and power of the Holy Spirit of God. Brothers and sisters, this is not just for people on the platform. You know, praying that the Holy Spirit will guide us and lead us and so on. And that's exactly what we do pray. And Paul speaks about speaking not with words that man teaches, but that words taught by the Holy Spirit Dear brother, dear sister, when you talk to your neighbour and offer them a tract, you are doing so in the power of the Spirit of God. When you live your life before men and women, whether you're at school or college or university or whatever, and you, you try to live a wholly separate life, a life that is Christ-like, you're doing so depending on the power of the indwelling Spirit of God. And so... It was a spiritual ministry. We'll have to move on quickly. It was a local ministry. It was a biblical ministry. It was a ministry controlled by the Holy Spirit. It was a dispensational ministry. And if we go right to the end of the 
uh, the sermon as it were verse 19 to preach the acceptable year of the Lord now you all know about this um, well maybe you won't uh, we always say people you all know about this but uh, there are younger people maybe um, what the Lord Jesus does here is very dramatic and very interesting um, sometimes you know when you're preaching if the audience are with you uh, sometimes you start quoting a verse and you can see somebody's mouth moving and they're finishing it off and I like to think that in Nazareth that day the old Pharisees are sitting at the back and the Lord is, is, uh, is quoting this verse uh, and uh, preaching the acceptable year of the Lord and of course if we read Isaiah 61 it goes on, there's just a comma and it goes on to say and the day of vengeance of our God and I imagine an old man at the back and he's mouthing out the day of vengeance and the Lord just cuts the verse in two and he closes the book because the point of it is this that the day of vengeance belongs to another dispensation and the year, the acceptable year of the Lord belongs to now I think it was Harry Ironside who said there are at least 2,000 years in that comma <laughs> there are at least 2,000 years in that comma the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. We're going to talk about that maybe in, 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 in a way tonight. But the Lord Jesus dramatically stops. I think there's a pause. They're wondering, has he lost his place? Why isn't he finishing the verse? And then very deliberately he rolls it up. He's unfinished. That's it. Because it's not the time of judgment, it's the time of grace. Brothers and sisters, let us just remember that. And while we're on that passage, or that verse, uh, remember this. Now there seems to be, in my mind at least, a kind of play between the terms, the acceptable year and the day. Now I know that it's not just one year, it's just one day. But it seems to me that, that, that emphasized is this, that judgment is God's strange work. And there is a limit to it, and it's a, it's a dramatic surgical strike it's the day of vengeance but when it comes to the acceptable it's not the acceptable day it's the acceptable year you see our God brothers and sisters is a God of plentiful mercy a God who is rich in mercy a God who is rich in grace and so it is that he will come in and there will be the day of vengeance but mercifully it will be short it will be the day of vengeance but thank God we are in the acceptable year. Just think of the character of this dispensation. It is the character of grace. That is where we're living. God is only intervening in the world directly in one way today. If there are, if there are um, diseases that are brought upon men by their actions, they are simply reaping the fruit of natural laws. God is not intervening to punish men in the world today. God is intervening solely in grace. Because that's the character of the day. It's the acceptable year of the Lord. Think of the contents of this, just for a few moments. The Lord speaks about, we're not going to go into the details, but he speaks about preaching the gospel to the poor, healing the brokenhearted, preaching deliverance to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, setting at liberty those that are bruised, and preaching the acceptable year of the Lord. Now you can see all these things worked out in the Lord's 
earthly ministry. That's exactly what the Lord did. But brethren and sisters, in a spiritual sense, that is the ministry of this age. First of all, it is good news to the poor. I, I, I would like to encourage uh, my, my brethren who preach the gospel. May the Lord bless you in preaching the gospel. But remember this, that primarily it is the gospel. It is good news. I know that there needs to be conviction of sin. And I know that we need to bring the word of God to bear. But brethren and sisters, we are announcing good news to the poor. It is an enriching message that we have in this dispensation. Um, C.H. Spurgeon said that when you're preaching about the, the glories of salvation, the wonders of forgiveness, he said, let your countenance beam with a radiance of joy. And he says, when you're talking about the punishment of the ungodly, he says, your normal face will do. But let us, let us be sure, brothers and sisters, that when we present the gospel, we focus on the fact that it is good news. Good news to the poor. And then it is not only um, an, an enriching message, but it is a comforting message, healing the brokenhearted. There are brokenhearted around us. You see, we, we tend to pray that, Lord, nobody's interested today. Nobody's interested. That's because we don't know the people. That's because we don't know the people. I believe people are as interested today in one sense. That there isn't the same church attendance, but there's the same brokenheartedness and bring a message of comfort and a message of deliverance to the captives. There are captives all around us. We have a message of deliverance, recovering of sight. We've been hearing about the, the illumination of God's word, the enlightening to those who are blind. And then there's the relief of those who are crushed by the weight. That's the idea, setting at liberty those that are bruised. And this is the content of this message. It is a message of grace just to before we pass on from it I want you to think of the cost of it as well because it has been pointed out that every condition the Lord Jesus ministered to in this passage he experienced he experienced what it is to be poor you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich yet for your sakes he became poor and uh, the man who preached good news to the poor knew poverty that they could never experience. Healing the brokenhearted, you go to Psalm 69, isn't it? Reproach has broken my heart. The captives, led as a lamb to the slaughter, bound by men. The recovery of sight to the blind. You remember that incident in the palace of the high priest where they blindfolded the Savior and smote him, prophesy who smote thee, to set at liberty them that are bruised, the crushing weight of Golgotha, brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus experienced all this. And before, uh, before this message could be a reality and could be enjoyed and experienced, there was a cost to bear. Now, brothers and sisters, that is the character of the age in which we live. And if you want proof of that, just ask Luke's friend, the Apostle Paul. He says, God has given me a great privilege. 
He's given me this wonderful message to present. But I'll tell you this, alongside it, there goes suffering. That uh, he, he outlines some of it in Second Corinthians. And he says, and at top of all this, he says, I've got the care of all the churches. And, uh, and he's, we'll never suffer maybe like the Apostle Paul did. But brethren and sisters, let me say, if we are going to be, and I speak to my own heart, if we are going to be effective in opening the book of grace, we'll have to be willing to pay the price. Because that's the dispensation we're living in. And so it was dispensational. We'll just finish with this. It was topical. The Lord Jesus says, This day is this scripture. Now, we can understand this in a number of ways, but the interesting thing is that when the Lord came into the synagogue, we sometimes think that the Lord selected very deliberately this passage. Now that may be true, but Edersheim and others who know about the history of the synagogue tell us that actually there was an arranged system of reading the word of God. So in other words, when the Lord Jesus came into the synagogue at Nazareth, it was exactly the right time. It was exactly the right time for this passage to be read. And that's why it gives an added force to this day is this scripture. This is the scripture for the day. You have a daily reading plan. I hope everyone here has. You read the word of God every day. This day is this scripture. And then at the end, the Lord says, it's the acceptable year of the Lord. Well, actually, you can actually think of this as the proclamation of the year of Jubilee. You know, every 50 years in Jerusalem, they had to proclaim a Jubilee. And that meant the release of captives, the the restoration of property. It it meant a, a kind of pressing, a reset button. And if you'd sold your land, you had an opportunity to get it back. If you'd sold yourself into slavery, then you were set free after 50 years. There is no record in the Word of God that they ever kept the Jubilee. But they kept it today. And I'm not going to push this, so don't press me at the door. Some suggest that if you calculate when they came back from the captivity, that this year was the 50th year. And so the Lord is saying, this day, the Scripture. Now, for us today, one of the great challenges, I think, is to know which scripture applies to which day. I don't mean Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I mean the scriptures that apply to us. We've been thinking about digging into the Word of God. Young people today, get into the scriptures and you'll discover that there are certain dispensations in the Word of God. There are certain times when God acts towards mankind in a certain way and get to understand which scripture refers to which day and that will save you from a lot of trouble. The difficulties that our brethren have with the the clergy and with a formal priesthood is because they've got the wrong scripture for the wrong day. The difficulty is that our our friends have with prosperity theology, thinking that if you're faithful to God, you'll never be ill and you'll never be poor. They've got the wrong scripture for the wrong day. Now the Lord Jesus says, this day, this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he opens the book of grace. Now, brethren and sisters, 
We are associated with him. That is our role today. Don't get sidelined. I have to, uh, my wife will be smiling here because I'm quite interested in politics and I tend to follow what's happening and so on. But don't get sucked into thinking that you can change the world through politics or or through um, uh, some humanitarian way. Brethren and sisters, our role today is to open the book of grace and it will cost us. But if we do it the way the Lord did it, he will be glorified. You'll notice I haven't said that there'll be success because there was no success here. They were going to throw him over the brow of the hill. But his very reaction underlines the dispensation that we're living in. He passed through the midst. Instead of judging them, instead of punishing them, we're not in the business of punishing. We're not in the business of judging in that sense. We are in the business of opening the book of grace. Thank you, Douglas, for the the ministry from the the Word of God. In a few moments we'll have a break for refreshments. It will be helpful with those who have an exercise, both, both spiritual and physical. To help in the serving, if you just go to that door there, and right there you'll get instructions from those who are in charge of the, of the kitchen. Number 127, please. Um, 127, just to bring this session to a close. 127, look ye saints, the sight is glorious. See the man of sorrows now from the fight returned victorious. Every knee to him shall bow. Crown him, crown has become the victor's bride. Sinners and derision crowned him, mocking thus the Saviour's claim. Saints and angels crowned around him, own his title, <coughs> praise his name. Crown him, spread abroad the victor's fame. Again we will stand uh, after the introduction and sing the hymn together, 127.
our blessed God. Again, we come into thy presence and thank thee for what we have received from thy gracious hand already today. Ministry from thy work concerning thy good hand in creation. And God said, and it was so. We thank our God of the fact that that would remind us of the power and the greatness of Almighty God. And what a privilege it is to be able to handle thy work and to be in thy presence. We remember too the word of Scripture, it's by grace we are saved, and that not of works, lest any man should boast. And we thank you for the opening of that book of grace. And thank you, our God, that we are so blessed that we brought into the good of that and the blessing of thy grace to others. It's that that has brought us here. And we thank you for that. And thank you for the one who made that possible, our Lord Jesus Christ, remembering too that without him was not anything made that was made. We thank you for what we have received from thy good hand. We thank you of refreshments provided for us. These refreshments do come from thy gracious hand. We acknowledge that. And for them, we give to thee our thanks. In the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. <coughs> 